Good afternoon, good evening, good morning. Are you alive? I've uh, really been looking forward to being back with you again. And uh, I think that that word that Tyler brought is, is so spot on, not just for Treasure, uh, just back a little bit. Is that better? Yeah, it's better. Yeah, better. Uh, I, that word that he gave about, uh, you know, God accelerating things and uh, moving before where things, all the preliminary stuff has been done. It was so right, not only for us tonight, and the others that I was in that meeting, we didn't get a chance to pray for him. You just can't keep a, a, a leash on that Holy Spirit. But, uh, uh, all over the world, we are in an incredible time of acceleration and of uh, what God is doing. I was uh, uh, in January, mid-January, I was with a church in near Nashville, Tennessee. It's a church I've been to, I've a lot in the last several years. Good-sized church, and uh, they've got phenomenal worship going on there. Uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, every church has musicians who are either professional or close to professional. If you have bad worship at a church in Nashville, you should just close your doors and knock it up, go home. But uh, this is a church that they love to worship, and we've had some incredible meetings here with God, where the glory of God, the power of God, the comfort of God, all of that has been uh, so much in evidence. And we were starting meetings on a Sunday morning. They have two Sunday morning meetings, and Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, that sort of thing. And the pastor, the senior pastor, picked me up at the airport Saturday night and flew in and went up to dinner. And the normal protocol structure for their Sunday morning meetings is they have about 45 minutes of worship, then they have announcements, then they have a word and ministry time. But, uh, as he said, well, what are you thinking about tomorrow morning right there in the restaurant? I just sent the presence of the Holy Spirit, the, the glory of the Lord, and it was a little bit actually difficult to spot in to talk for a few moments. And then I said to him, you know, I know that you always have 45 minutes of worship, but what about if we did something different? What if we cut the worship down to about 15, 20 minutes? And you get me up there right away, because I want to talk about, out of Isaiah 66, making a resting place for the glory of God. And then we go back into worship afterwards and we see what happens. And so he agreed to that, and I was up there within 25 minutes. I started speaking about making a resting place for the glory of God. And even while I was speaking, just the presence of the Lord got so heavy in the place that when we did go back into worship, we worshiped for uh, well over 90 minutes straight. And that was just the first service. We didn't have any break between the fact we worshiped all the way up until I would have gotten up and started speaking for the second service. A lot of the people at the first service, they didn't want to leave the meeting. So for the second service, it was standing only, literally. That can happen in a church, believe it or not. <laughs> but as well, there were a number of people that physically were unable to get up out of their seats and leave the first meeting. And it was like that uh, a lot of the rest of the time there, the next group it is. We are in a time where God is doing far more than we can think or ask. And, you know, the seasons of the Lord are oftentimes a little bit different than the seasons of now. There are 
expecting those three or four months unless you live in Durham, that's about eight or nine months. But we don't want to talk about that. But you have the, the dormant time and then you have spring. And I was so glad to be here yesterday. I actually witnessed sunshine in Durham. I thought, you know, yes, revival has to be on the way. You know? But then we're back to rain again. <laughs> but you have spring. Spring is the time for sowing seeds. And then you have the summertime. It's uh, sometimes it's an early harvest, but you're watching things come up. You're reaping what you sow, and then you have the harvest time. And there's also a time in there sometimes for turning over the fallow ground. And we know the cycle is three months, three months, three months, three months approximately. But that's not always how it is in the kingdom of God. But sometimes what appears to us as a dormant season where it seems like there's not a lot of new things budding, there's not a lot of fresh things happening, sometimes it's not just three or four months, it's not just three or four years, but it can be longer. And we can get discouraged, we can think, well, maybe God's not really into those prophetic words we had. Maybe the promises we're reading about the Bible, but for the church, you know, on the other side of the country or something like that, or Brazil or Africa. But the reality is, the greater the need for breakthrough, oftentimes the greater the work of preparation in our souls and the life of the church. I've been a Christian for well over 40 years, and I've been in full-time international ministry for 38 years now, and I've had the privilege of being part of five moves of the Spirit, um, some of them nationwide, some of them international. My wife and I actually got saved in Southern California in the early 70s in what was called the Jesus Movement, and it was a time where literally for about six, seven years, Hundreds of thousands of young people between 15 and 30 were coming to the Lord. And predominantly, they were coming straight out of the counterculture movement, straight, you know, after the dead, hippies, freaks, long hairs, bikers, everything. And it was just phenomenal how many young people were coming toward Jesus. There were incredible churches that quickly sprang up to reach three, four, five, ten, fifteen thousand during that time. And it affected the church landscape all across the nation because churches that had been kind of dormant and not seen much in evangelism, didn't have much expectation for evangelism, all of a sudden they began to see things happening on a huge scale. But then in the uh, uh, late 70s, early 80s, uh, our church in San Diego, we were not a vineyard at the time, although we did become a vineyard, we became part of what was happening with John Wimber, that international move of signs and wonders and something fresh happening in worship. And it was an interesting time, especially in worship, because a lot of churches at that time, they sang songs uh, about God, like the thankfulness for the cross, thankfulness for heaven, and praise and gratitude. But worship, so to speak, during that time, I'm not just saying because of John Wimber, it was something God was doing across the board. But there was an awakening that we can actually sing to the Lord, not just sing about him. And the whole thing out of Psalm 22, God inhabits the praises of his people, that worship is not just uh, singing historically about what he has done or what he will do and that gratitude, although that's important, but an actual sense of meeting with God and a sense of, uh, you know, what Moses referred to as the tent of meeting. But then, uh, as many of you know, I was uh, removed, my wife and I moved in 92 to Toronto, Canada, and within 
know, just a reconvene there at the prophetic conference, the Lord gave me a vision of Niagara Falls coming down to the city of Toronto. And the Lord said that in late 93, early 94, he was going to pour out his spirit upon the church of the city and was going to go to the nations. And sure enough, in early 94, that year began, they estimate that in the first six years, between four and five million people walked through the doors of our church. And I know a lot of people that think that would be exciting. Let me tell you, it's like one person said about revival. It's a whole lot of work with a few good stories to tell. So be careful what you pray for. But then also, uh, on the heels of that, because a couple, many of you have heard of them, many of you have heard them speak, Heidi and Roland Baker, they were pastoring a, a small church and an orphanage in southern Mozambique in Maputo. They were burnt out, they were tired, they were desperate, but they heard the move of the Spirit who was coming to Toronto, that happened in Toronto. They flew all the way over, and they had the most profound touch of the Lord. And when they got back to Mozambique within a few months, things just began to pop. And I began to go over regularly. There's probably a 10-year time frame that I went over sometimes twice a year to encourage and assist in that, especially in pastors' conferences. But they grew from a couple of small location orphanages to now there's thousands and thousands of churches that they've birthed all up and down, especially the coast of South uh, East Africa. And I've been there, I've seen firsthand of Muslim villages that have never let in anything to do with Christianity. I remember one, we saw over half the village, over 250 people come to Christ in one night. And because of the miracles that took place, the Muslim elders of the village came to them after that night and said, when can you people start a church here? And I just uh, saw that, and uh, many of you have heard the stories and the testimony of what God has done with them. But then also there was a move of the Spirit in uh, Baltimore, a city on the East Coast of the United States, that was mainly, I wouldn't call such a move of the Spirit that went all over, but there's this heavy presence of the Lord. And for about three years, every single Monday and Tuesday night, this church would just gather together and worship, and churches and Christians would come from all over, some from all over the country, but especially from the East Coast, and the heaviness of God was there. And as I look back on one of the things I've had the privilege of seeing God doing, you know, uh, the power of God released, new things in worship, the joy of the Lord, all prophetic moves and things like that. I think that what we're on the verge of in the next few years, internationally, is going to supersede that. And I think there's such uh, going to be such an awareness of the glory of Christ and the majesty of Christ and the power of Christ. I was pausing, thinking two or three people might even say hallelujah or amen, but we'll keep going. Is there a Britain? Where are we here in the UK on Friday night? Maybe by Sunday night, we'll, we'll get a few Pentecostals in the crowd. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 60. One person with a little bit of coaxing is excited. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 60. The first few verses read, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the bright 
This is speaking about a, a dualistic tension going on that Isaiah's prophesying about a growing spiritual darkness from the earth, but at the same time, the glory of God manifesting in his people. Now, we know in the first understanding of this, this is really about Jesus and uh, his coming to earth and what he did on the cross. But with many prophecies, especially in the Old Testament, there's layer upon layer of application. And I believe there's application for us today that as we look at the world culture around us, particularly the Western world, in the UK, North America, Europe, Scandinavia, our culture has changed so dramatically in the last 20, 30 years, and not for the better. Suicide is increasing, drug abuse is increasing, alcohol abuse is increasing, dependence upon uh, opiates and, you know, um, prescription pharmaceuticals is increasing. And with all the wonders we've got at modern, modern medicine, not that we don't need that, but it seems like there's an increase in this basic problem, such as diabetes and cancer and all of this stuff going on. And there is a growing spiritual darkness upon the world, but the dualistic promise, is the tension is, at the same time, God's glory will be manifest in his people. And for those that have eyes to see and ears to hear, they're going to be drawn to what God is doing. And Isaiah begins by saying, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And what that means is there can be a little bit of sleepiness going on, a little bit like the story just told of the ten virgins waiting for the return of the bridegroom going on. There was a slumbering going on, and they needed an awakening. I want to tell two stories of people that, because of the power of God manifesting either to them or through them, uh, had a serious awakening. Uh, my wife, uh, she uh, has a lot of different responsibilities. She uh, handles our books and CD company. She uh, does, she has a background in banking and accounting. She does all the bookkeeping for our ministry. And uh, she's got a lot going on, uh, keeping track of me. She uh, does a lot of my PA work. But on top of everything else, she also works three days a week for a family-owned business from our family in our church. And she works as a secretary of bookkeeping and accounting for them and whatnot. And uh, I want to tell you about uh, a couple uh, that she works with. Well, actually, she works with the wife. Her name is Patty. And uh, she didn't really know Patty, but got to know her when she started working there a couple of years ago. And Patty told her this story. Uh, Patty is now, uh, I was doing this story last night actually, Patty is on her second marriage, her first husband died about uh, 10 years ago, and she's a very focused Christian, very serious about her walk with God, and she was just, you know, uh, mourning the loss of her husband, but getting on with her life, walking with the Lord, and uh, wasn't really looking for a man in her life, and one day she was at the supermarket, and she notices this guy, Patty, is in, uh, you know, at that time was in her early 50s. She, uh, she notices this one guy, kind of about her age, is kind of looking at her kind of funny. And so she quickly turns, goes down a different aisle. And then she looks around and notices this guy is following her. And she's thinking, oh, is this guy a, uh, you know, a weirdo? Is he, you know, do I need to call security? What's going on? 
But the guy walks up and says, you don't remember me, do you? And she says, oh, you look a little bit familiar. He said, we went to high school together. We had a couple of classes together. And so they, they kind of, you know, catch up very quickly. She really doesn't want to be bothered by him, you know, but she's just trying to get out of it. And uh, she says, he says, well, what's going on in your life? And he says, well, you know, I lost my husband a few years ago. You know, I'm just going on with things. And he said, well, he said, I never told you this, but all through high school, I had a crush on you. <laughs> and I was devastated when you started going out with that guy. He got married. And he said, would you be open to me giving you a call sometime? And reluctantly, she gave him her telephone number. So uh, a few weeks go by, he gives her a call and uh, asked her on a date. And she said, well, there's one thing you really need to know about me. I am very serious about the Lord Jesus Christ in my life. And I'm not really interested in getting in a relationship with someone who's not serious about Jesus Christ. And he said, well, can I go to your church with you some Sunday? How would that be? She said, that's okay. So a couple of Sundays later, he came to church. He didn't really go to church. He wasn't a follower of Christ, but he, he actually liked it. You know, he came to our church service, and he started coming regularly. And he made a real commitment a couple months later to the Lord. So she kind of now semi-reluctantly starts dating him. But she's keeping him at about two arms length because, as I said, she's very focused on the Lord and she knows he's made a commitment to the Lord, but not sure really how serious he is. But uh, they're, they're starting to go on a little bit. And one Saturday afternoon, he calls her up and says, would you like to go out to dinner tomorrow night, Sunday night? And, and uh, this is before my wife and I moved back to San Diego and I was in town that weekend doing meetings. She said, well, I'm going to the meeting with Mark DuPont on Sunday night at the church. And she said, I know you're a little bit skeptical about some of the things with the Holy Spirit, prophecy, and healing. So um, I, I, don't, I don't want you to go and bother me. I want to go. I want to listen to the message. I want to be focused. He says, oh, no, I'll, I'll be focused. I'm probably you. So she says, Okay. So they're sitting there, we have the worship and the word, and then we get into the ministry time. And she says to my wife that your husband, Mark, he gave a word uh, of knowledge that God wanted to heal some people with deaf left ears. And uh, he had a deaf left ear, and he was actually sitting to her left. And she nudges him and says, go up there, give prayer. And he said, I'm not going up there. And, uh, you know, he really didn't believe in healing and all this stuff, you know. I'm not going up there. She said, go up there, get prayer. She said, no, I'm not going up there. And Patty said that uh, about four or five people came up. I prayed for them. The Lord was touching them. But when I finished praying, I said that there's somebody else you were supposed to come up here. And, you know, it's a good-sized church building we have, and there's the people in the balconies, you know, the kind of amphitheater shape. And she said, I pointed right to where they were seated at, and his name is Randy. He's actually just told me the story last week. He said, Mark, you had never met me. You picked me out of the crowd, and I swear we locked eyes. You locked your teeny little eyes on me. And he said, there's somebody else you need to come up here. And I said, get up there. No, I'm not going up there. Well, so we go off the meeting, praying for other people, other things. 
And uh, about 10 minutes later, he turns to her and said, you know, these two teenage girls sitting a row ahead of us up there, you know, a few seats away, have they been talking this loud the whole meeting? And she says, they're not talking loud. He says, well, have they been talking this loud? I can barely hear them. What are you talking about? Just sitting there, his ear was completely open. And that was a real awakening for Randy. And I tell you, anything we're doing as a church now, I mean, it could be something bizarre like uh, golfing or fundraiser or prayer and worship, uh, seeking the face of God, he's there. He's on like a part of that. That he knew the Lord, but there was an awakening that happened in his life. I may have told you this second story when I was with you a year or two before. Uh, about four years ago now, I was in Taichung in Taiwan, and we did a conference on miracles, and we got a number of great healings that happened. Well, one of the testimonies they sent me a week later was of a woman who, she wasn't the prayer ministry team, she wasn't highly involved in the church, she wasn't an evangelist, or didn't pray for people in the supermarket, that just wasn't her thing. But she came to the conference, and about five days after the conference, she had gone to this room hall where she goes a couple times a week for exercise. She finished, and she was sitting on a bench outside the swim hall waiting for her husband to pick her up. And on the opposite end of the bench, as she's sitting there, this older gentleman just falls right over and stopped breathing. And it was a plexiglass wall that separated the sidewalk, or you call it, what do you call it? Foot path. Okay, yeah. So that's the path to something out in the mountains you do. But anyway, he falls over on the sidewalk. <laughs> And uh, the crew from the pool comes running out, trying to do CPR and resuscitate him, all this stuff. And he's just dying in front of everybody. He's turning blue. And she's just sitting, watching the crew, trying to work on him. And she's just quietly in the heartbeat, God, please do something. But all of a sudden, the thought came to her, wait a minute, I've just heard for four days that God is still doing healings and miracles today. So reluctantly, way out of her element, she pushes her way through this crowd around him, feeling very awkward, puts a hand on his chest and said, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke the spirit of death and I call you back to life. The old boy just sat up breathing. <laughs> <laughs> and so they kept me discussing my thought, oh, this is so cool. And I started thinking about, wait a minute. It took me about three years to go from bad knees to bad backs, and about five years to go bad backs to cancer, another five years to go to blind eyes, and now she's raised into death right out of the street. But uh, I, I think this is really the time frame we're in, that it's like Jesus said, those who are last should be first, that we're, in, we're coming into a time of acceleration. And I think one of the things we've got to understand is maybe to relearn some of the foundational things about the kingdom of God and the gospel. Um, you don't have, well, maybe I should, maybe this is an assumption on my part. Do you have Ikea up here? Oh. <laughs> you poor people. Uh, I don't believe in purgatory. 
But if I didn't believe there was a purgatory, it would be endlessly a subwing idea of furniture. It, it's like straight from the pit. You know, you, you realize you need a piece of furniture, maybe a couch or something of like that of yours that's falling apart. So you go to Ikea and you scout it all out and you find something that looks pretty good. And uh, you pay for it and you're waiting at the loading dock and it comes out. But it's not this nice piece of furniture you just saw in the showroom. It's this big, flat box. And uh, you, uh, you look at it and you realize, I'm in a world of trouble here. You get it home, you open up this big, long, flat box, and there's a million little parts in there. So you spend about two or three hours at something this together, and it's looking pretty good. You put it in that place where you need that piece of furniture. You think, okay, this is cool. This is good. But then all of a sudden you realize there's about four or five small pieces on the floor. And you know, it's like a revelation from the throne of God. You know those four or five pieces are supposed to be in there somewhere. And sure enough, the thing just does not work the way it's supposed to work. And you think it completely apart. But this time you do something very, very different. You read the instructions very carefully. Could it be that one of the reasons the church doesn't always work the way we think it's supposed to work is because maybe we need to go back to the beginning of the instructions, which are the four Gospels, and see what the essential message there that Jesus, John the Baptist, the Twelve, and the Seventy had. We want to know all about church life. And the epistles are all about church life, how to love one another, forgive one another, grow, encourage one another, all that sort of thing. But it really doesn't work unless we get first things first. The word church is only mentioned two to three times in the Gospels, and that's only in the book of Matthew. Whereas the phrase, the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, is mentioned some 74 times. It was the premier message that Jesus, John the Baptist, the Twelve, and the Seventy preached. And it was startling, you know, we read this, seek first the kingdom of God, or when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, our Father who art in heaven, how would be thy name? Thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. We don't always really think about that and put it into perspective. But historically, for John the Baptist to proclaim to the Hebrew people, the kingdom is at hand. And then for Jesus to say, the kingdom has come near you. And then what he told the disciples to do, go and preach the gospel of the kingdom. Not the gospel of going to heaven when you die, but he said, go and preach the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. And if you do so, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, and cast out demons. And then the reality is, anywhere the kingdom of God is being expressed, demonstrated, and manifesting, there is a radical change in the quality of life. Those living in hopelessness, all of a sudden now they've got hope. Those living in despair and confusion, all of a sudden they've got focus and they have purpose. And even when it comes oftentimes to our sicknesses and diseases and disabilities, When the kingdom of God is moving, there's the power of the kingdom. 
That's why, you know, for example, when the demons were being cast out, Jesus said, no, the demons are cast out. The finger of God has come near to you. And he said to the people, he said, don't look for the kingdom of God here or there, for the kingdom of God is within you. And he was speaking prophetically about this whole thing that we sometimes take for granted, being born again and filled with the Spirit. Because anywhere the Lord is, anywhere the Spirit is, the kingdom of God is there, and there's the opportunity to move. That's what happened to this woman in Tai Chung. She had never even prayed for a bad knee to be healed, and there she is, almost raising somebody from the dead. Why? It's not because maybe she was a great saint or not. She may be, I don't know. But it's because the Spirit of the Lord was present, and where the Spirit is, there is liberty. And so Jesus, he gathered the twelve disciples, and for three years he preached, he taught, he healed, he cast out demons, he fed people, you know, just all these great and wonderful things he did. But primarily what he did for three years was he trained and mentored the twelve. And we know, obviously, Judas, you know, he went south, that's a different story. But he prepared the eleven disciples for he himself, Jesus, on the day of ascension, what we call the ascension, to go back to the Father. It's so interesting that, you know, Mary, Mary Magdalene, most likely, she went running on that third day. She went to the tomb, and she found that the tomb was empty. And she looks all around, you know, what's going on? And says she saw a man that she thought must be the gardener that worked there in that area. And she said, sir, do you know where they have taken my Lord Jesus? And obviously it was Jesus. And he said, Mary, and her eyes were opened. And uh, she, she just tried to grab hold of them. But Jesus said these words, Mary, don't cling to me. I must go to the Father. And we, understand, we, we, we don't quite understand why would he say that, that she was just so, you know, beside himself, herself, and her love for him, the fact that he's raised from the dead. But he was pointing to an all-important truth, that he was going to go to the Father so he could send forth the Holy Spirit. He had told the disciples a few days before his arrest, the passion, the torture, the crucifixion, all of it, that what was going to happen. And he said to the disciples, I'm going to leave you where I'm going. You can't come right now. And he said to them a few verses later, I know that it grieves you that I tell you I'm leaving you, but I tell you it is for your benefit that I leave you, because if I don't leave you, I cannot send the Holy Spirit. You see, up until that time, there was the group of 12, and there was the larger group of disciples of 70, but just a limited amount of people at any one time could actually be with Jesus. But with the release of the Holy Spirit because of payment for our sins on the cross, there are now probably over a billion people on the face of the earth that call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior but they don't just call him that. They don't just believe in what he did at 2,000 years on the cross. They know his presence, Emmanuel. That's obviously the name of your church here, Emmanuel. 
What a great name. That's the name that Isaiah, some 713 years before Christ came, prophesied a child should be born to you, and his name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. And see, with this coming of the kingdom, it's not just the power of the Lord, although it is that, but it's the presence of the Lord. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible, Psalm 105, verse 4, that says, Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. That aside from the Spirit of the Lord, we can do nothing. God sent the prophet to encourage Zerubbabel in the rebuilding of the temple because we don't have time to go into it. There would be so much opposition both from without the Hebrew people and within. Just so much criticism, so much contention. But he said to him, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And see, just as they were called to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed, we live in a time where a lot of the church has, so to speak, fallen by the wayside. There are less people that attend church in the Western world nations than ever before, especially compared to 20, 30, 40 years ago. And I believe that just as Isaiah spoke in Isaiah 61, we're called to rebuild the ancient ruins. Here in the UK, in Europe, Scandinavia, North America, there are so many cities and communities that 100 years ago, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, 250 years ago, experienced revival, amazing moves of the Spirit. I was, when I was in Australia about six weeks ago, I was given a couple of books because I mentioned the revival that happened in 1949, in 1950, 51, and 52, in the north of Scotland, in the Outer Hebrides, those islands off, off the north there. And these two books are primarily comprised of people who were there at that time and experienced the move of the Spirit. And just testimony after testimony after testimony of sometimes just walking into a church building or sometimes just even walking into the communities that were experiencing the move of the Spirit and being overwhelmed with the presence of God. And one of the writers said something, and I've been a student of revival for 35 years now, but one of the, the writers of the two books said something that I had never read before, but just written me. And they said the true hallmark of revival is not how many people are attending the meetings or even how many people, quote, get saved, but the hallmark of revival, True revival is a God awareness coming upon our cities and our nation. And we can look at uh, things historically, like what happened with John and Charles Wesley, that what they did, especially in the following generation, a nation being impacted. We can look at North America, what happened there with the Great Awakening in the late eighth part of the 18th century and different moves of the spirit we've had. But, you know, we can look at church after church after church here in the UK or in North America or Europe that what time was filled with people vibrantly worshiping God. Some of them aren't even churches anymore except in, in the architecture. Some of them are restaurants, some of them are this, some of them are that. 
But in our day and age, I believe God wants to rebuild the ancient ruins. He wants to bring restoration. And we are called to a similar task as Haggai and Zerubbabel were to rebuild the temple at a time of destruction. I'm not talking about just more buildings, although you are moving into another building here. I'm not talking about structure, but I'm talking about hurting, broken lives, shattered people being brought together in the love of God. The Spirit is upon us, Isaiah said, to heal those broken hearts and to set those captives free. But it's not by might, it's not by power, it's not by our sophistication, it's not by what kind of clever church programs we come up with. It's not even by clever sermons. I love what the Apostle Paul said to the church in Corinth. He said, I didn't come in your midst with clever messages, but he said, I came with the demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit, with the signs and wonders, the healing miracles of a true apostle. Well, we're not all called to be apostles, but we are called to be an apostolic people. We are called to be a people with a message to make a difference. And it is so important, like when you begin to assemble the Ikea piece of furniture, it is so important that we get first things first. And I believe God wants to be our awakening that in the church, not that we forget everything that we've learned in the epistles, not that we don't continue on in Paul's teaching, Peter and John, but that, that there's an awakening of the presence and power of God of seeking first the kingdom of God. Are you still alive? And so Jesus, for three years, he taught and he preached, he healed, he delivered, he did all these things. But the greatest thing he did with his amount of time was he trained and mentored and discipled the disciples. And on the day of ascension, when he rose to the Father, he turned everything over to them, which was a very scary proposition from my way of looking at it. You know, we can we can look all around us, and, you know, sometimes outwardly, you can look at them and say, oh, they've really got it together. We don't know what sort of misery they may be living in. I was speaking about a few moments with that church in Nashville, Tennessee. I was doing some training there. Uh, I was doing a seminar a couple of years ago. I was doing this one particular seminar on learning to know the voice of the Lord. And so during one of the ministry sessions, I picked out a number of people and prophesied over them. And one of the people I picked out, and don't take this the wrong way, but she was a very beautiful young woman. She was about maybe 30 or so. Uh, and, you know, the type of person that every hair was perfectly in place, you know, looked like she'd just come from the most expensive women's clothing store in town and just blah, 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 blah. God loves everybody, doesn't he? But anyway, I had a, a, a prophetic word for her, and I said to her, this is what the Lord says to you. In regards to your future, don't be afraid that you're going to imitate the mistakes that your parents Don't be afraid for your future that you're going to do what your parents did. And, you know, I'm, I, I don't really know what this word means, but bam, she collapsed on the floor, not so much from the power of the Holy Spirit, but just 
this emotional heaviness came on her, and she was just in tears for about 15 or 20 minutes. At the next session, you know, she I, I asked some of the people I prostate over if they could relate what I had said publicly, what it meant to them. I didn't really push anyone, but she came forward. And she said, you know, she said, outwardly, a lot of people think I have it together. And she was actually in the statewide beauty contest 10 years before. She was Miss Tennessee, you know. She thought, you know, I'm not very open about this. And a lot of people, they think, you know, I've got everything together. But she said, my life has been a wreck all of my life because both my father and my mother were abusive of me and my, my brothers and sisters. And she said, I've been married about eight years now to a wonderful husband who uh, very much want kids, but I've been pretending to him that I'm unable to have kids because I've had this fear within me that if I had kids, I was going to do to my children what my parents did to me. And she got set free of that. She got set free of that. And, you know, it's, it's just what God said to Sam. But we look at the outward appearance and we see this person, oh, well, they've got a good job. Well, this person, you know, they've got a good family. Well, this person, you know, they're succeeding here. It can look like people have it together. But without Jesus, you know, we're just ticking time bombs. You know? And this is one of the reasons why we see growing in our culture, you know, um, especially from people who preach tolerance for everybody. There is so much intolerance. There is so much antagonism. There is so much anger. There is so much bitterness, so much criticism. It's because the further our culture and our societies get from Christ, the more and more empty we are. And the Spirit of God is just going to do things in our day and age beyond what we can imagine. So, Jesus spent this time preparing the disciples, and he said, I'm going to be leaving you, and I know that it grieves you, but it's actually to your benefit, because if I don't leave, I can't send the Spirit. And then he ended up, as we know, being arrested, tortured, crucified, but he rose from the dead on the third day. And I'm not going to turn to it, but if you were to go to John chapter 20, starting around verse 20, is when the disciples had one of their first encounters with Jesus after the resurrection. And it says that he looked upon them and he said, Peace be to you. God's kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And isn't it interesting that throughout both the Old and New Testament, when all of a sudden God would make a cameo appearance and somebody appear to people like the angels appearing to the shepherds on the hill, the first thing God would often say would be peace to you, because Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And so he said peace to the disciples. And then he said, as the Father has sent me, so I sent you. And he said again, I say peace to you. We're to have a double portion of peace in life as his sons and daughters. Not just because of how much money you may have in the bank or maybe, you know, you trust in socialized medicine or this or that. No, we have a double portion of peace 
because we have the peace of God that cannot be shaken. And then Jesus breathed upon the disciples. They had already known the anointing, the power of the Holy Spirit as they'd gone out, casting out demons, healing the sick. But something took place that had never happened in the history of all the world. Not even Adam and Eve, who could be with God, but they were not in God, and God is not in them. But because Jesus had paid for sins, we could receive the Spirit, the very presence of God within us, Emmanuel. And so Jesus breathed upon them, and they became what we commonly call born again. The Spirit of God came within them. And so now our bodies are living temples of the Holy Spirit. And so it's within us, within our hearts, within our souls, that we have fellowship with God. And as Paul in Galatians 5 talked about the fruit of the Spirit, saying, walk in the Spirit, you will experience these things. We can know the amazing love of God, the peace of God, the joy of the Spirit, the power, the self-control, the goodness, the kindness, the gentleness. We can know the fruit of the Spirit. We can commune with Him in a way that even the twelve walking with Jesus couldn't do. But then, on the day of ascension, and many of you are familiar with this, in Acts chapter 1, He told the disciples, he said, I want you to wait here in Jerusalem, and you shall receive power from on high. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will be overshadowed. And he said, then you shall be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Basically, he said, I don't want you to do anything until you experience this filling of the power of the Holy Spirit. They were already born again. That had already taken place many days before, several weeks before, when Jesus rose from the dead. But now he was saying the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. They already had the Spirit within them, but now the anointing of God, the power of God, was going to come upon them. And you know the story that in Acts chapter 2, they were gathered together, and some eight, nine, ten days at the time of Pentecost, there were 120 of them in the upper room, and they were praying, fasting, waiting upon the Lord. And if we're honest, we have to say that going into this, they were not the fearless group of men that preached the gospel. They were fearful. They were afraid that the persecution that had gotten Jesus arrested and tortured and killed they were afraid that persecution could come against them as followers of Christ. But it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly, say suddenly, suddenly. just once if you're awake, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared upon them and rested upon them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men from all over the earth. But at the sound of this mighty rushing wind, people came from all over Jerusalem. It was such an incredible commotion. 
If you read about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that happened about 1905 in Azusa Street, that just the most, it was, it was only a small church. The building itself could only hold about 180 people. It wasn't a big thing. But there were these incredible signs that people just driving by or walking by often commented, you could see hanging balls of fire over the church building. This was documented that so many people said this. And just the phenomena. God has a way of drawing attention to himself beyond all of our PR and advertising. But anyway, that's in their message. About four of you are excited. <laughs> but at this sound, people came together, and all these people from different languages, different cultures, they were amazed because they heard the disciples speaking in all their own languages. How is this possible? See, when the Holy Spirit fills you with power, all of a sudden you have a supernatural ability to transcend cultural differences. About six of you are excited. When you're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, you have a boldness and a freedom to step beyond your own limitations. Yeah. I know I've told you this story here, but I'm going to bore you with telling it to you again, because I, I love this story. It's a young couple in our church. Uh, at that time, they were in their late 20s. This is about three years ago. And uh, they were saving up to try to get a down payment for a house. And housing in San Diego, California is very, very expensive. And uh, they were trying to get serious with this, and they had a habit of, uh, we have this chain of pastry and bread shops with coffee in America called Panera. And they would go there several times a week, and they realized, hey, if we're going to, if we're really serious, we've got to cut out all the non-essentials. So they said, no more Panera. And a couple of days later, the wife is driving uh, down the, you know, Glen Samaritans, and the Holy Spirit spoke to her. And this is not something she commonly experienced. But she felt the word say in her heart, I want you to go to Panera. And she said, well, that can't be God. And the thought came to her very strongly, I want you to go to Panera. She said, Lord, you know, uh, my husband and I just said, we're not going to go to Panera. I want you to go to Panera. So she said, okay, I'll, I'll just go and get a cup of coffee. I won't get a pastry. I'll just sit and stare at them. So she walks in, and there's a line there to get coffee. And she notices this young, about 19, 20-year-old girl sitting by herself with food that looked really distraught. And the Holy Spirit spoke to her and said, I want you to talk to her. I'm going to give you prophetic words for her. Now, some of you may be very adept at going up to complete strangers and evangelizing them or giving them prophetic words. Not her. She had never done anything like this. She's so far out of her element. And the Lord said, go talk to her. I'm going to give you a prophetic word for her. She said, oh, Lord, I can't do that. And uh, the Lord kept saying, go up and talk to her. I'm going to give you Words. And uh, she said, well, okay, God, here's what I'll do. I'll go get my cup of coffee, and if she's still there, I'll get my cup of coffee, I'll go talk to her. Now, what I'm about to tell you right now is worth the price of admission for tonight. Never make deals with God. The first time he tells you to do something, just say, yes, sir, I'm on it. Because when you try to finagle your way through the situation with God, he always ups the ante. He always makes it worse. And you know what's worse than that? He always gets his way in the end. So, 
She gets her cup of coffee and turns around. No, no, not only is she still there, but now she's sitting opposite a guy, and they're having a very heated, animated discussion. And Laura said, okay, go talk to her. And she said, well, I, I, just, I just can't interrupt this conversation. I don't know these people. And she starts walking out the door. We'll just say her name is Julie. The Lord said to her, Julie, where's your faith? So she feels rather convicted. She walks up. And, you know, even if, like, you know how Sunday morning you walk in 10 to 40 after church, and there's maybe a couple of good friends having an intense conversation. Even with good friends, you don't feel like barging in. Here's two complete strangers having rather heated discussion. And so she goes and she stands very close to their booth. And they're just having a fine look of, who are you? What do you want? And she said, I, I don't mean to seem weird, more weird than this already is. But I'm a Christian, and she points to a girl, Jesus just told me to come and tell you. And she, she doesn't even know what she's going to say, but all of a sudden these words start coming to her. She says, the Lord knows all the questions you have, but if you will trust them, the two of you, and walk with them, he will take care of your every need more than you can imagine. Now, proper protocol, not just I teach this, but everybody in the world who teaches on prophecy, says that when you prophesy over somebody, you then pause and say, does this make any sense to you? Not her. She just ran right out the door. She was gone. <laughs> so about six or eight weeks go by, and she and her husband are beginning to see a little bit of money saved up, and they realize, you know, they're, they're, they're doing this, it's going to happen. So they decide to reward themselves on a Saturday morning. They go to the local they're sitting there enjoying their pastry, their coffee, and who walks up to them but the girl she had talked to about eight weeks before. And the girl looks at me and says, do you remember me? And she says, yes. <laughs> and she's thinking, oh, man, I'm in trouble now. She said, you, you, you don't have any idea who I am or what was going on. And she said, no. She said, you have no idea the impact your words have my boyfriend and I were just kind of now coming to know Jesus a little bit, but we've never gone to church. She said, a week before you talked to us, I found out I was pregnant. And we wanted to keep the baby, but he doesn't have a good job. I don't have a good job. We were afraid we couldn't take care of the baby. And we were talking about whether we should have an abortion. And when you came and told us that, all of a sudden we knew we could keep the baby, that God is going to take care of us. And here's someone who's never prophesied before, walks up to a complete stranger, not only impacting their lives, but the next generation to come. And see, this is what the Holy Spirit does, that he gives you a freedom and ability to step outside of our comfort zones. And so the story is, as they're filled with the Spirit there, that this crowd, this huge crowd is gathered together, and Peter stands up, and he preaches the gospel. And thousands got saved. Counting just the men, it says 3,000 men were saved, and what that means is probably 15,000 maybe or more among the children that influenced. The church began not because of some clever program or structure or strategy, 
but because of the release of the power of the Holy Spirit yeah. and the freedom that gave. Yeah. Well, several years are going by. The church is growing like crazy. They're ministering to the widows and orphans. There's healings and miracles, signs and wonders happening. The apostles are teaching daily in the temple. They're meeting in what we would call home groups, breaking bread, uh, sharing Jesus together, praying for them. Things are just going great. But then Peter and John, maybe no story, performed a particular miracle in Acts 3, a man that everybody in Jerusalem knew because he had for years been lame, begging outside the temple. He was healed. That day, Peter and John, who were teaching daily in the temple, just walked by him and something clicked. The Holy Spirit released the gift of faith, and they looked at the man and said, Silver and gold have we none, but what we have we give. Stand up and walk. And when that man was healed, it created basically almost a riot, because as I said, everybody in Jerusalem knew about this man. And people were running to Peter and John, and almost treating them like they were gods who had done this. But Peter and John said, why do you look at us as if we have performed this miracle? They said, it is faith in the name of Jesus that has made this man well. Well, they ended up getting arrested. There was so much of a commotion. And they were hauled before the religious leaders and they were threatened not to preach the gospel anymore. But it says in Acts 4, they gathered together. They, they gathered together with uh, a bunch of the saints and they were released and they prayed together. And we're not going to cover the whole thing they prayed, but I just want to look at two things they prayed. In Acts 20, sorry, in Acts verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. You know, that word anointed, it means to have uh, oil, as it were, rubbed down into you. And Jesus was called the anointed one because the oil of the Holy Spirit, he was just saturated with the presence of God. That's why that woman could walk through the crowd without Jesus knowing it, just touch his back or shoulder and instantly be healed. It says in Luke chapter 4, when it says Jesus was full of the Spirit, that word in the Greek, full, the best translation of that is a, as a, a Greek uh, uh, teacher and theologian explained it. Thanks for your help there. But uh, explained to me one time. It's like a you, Alan, but you're not. <laughs> but he said the best translation of that word, it'd be trans, it, the transliteration would be erased. But the best translation of erased to English would be oozing the Holy Spirit. Jesus was so compactly filled with the Spirit, he was oozing the Spirit of God. You know how you can take a glass of water and fill it to the very top and then put a little bit more so it's higher in the center than the edges? That is not to begin to describe how full Jesus was. He could not contain the Holy Spirit so that woman could just walk through the crowd and just touch him. I was just, uh, two weekends ago, I did a conference uh, together with Steve Oliver. Some of you will be familiar with him. He's the apostolic leader of the Regents Beyond Churches that you're part of. We did a conference in uh, Missoula, Montana. We had churches that literally came from hours away. They came from Spokane, Washington, three hours in one direction. They came from all 
Helena, Montana, three hours in the other direction. They came from north from all over. And we had so many healings happen. And I remember I had told people the first night, on the second night, I was going to speak about healing. And, you know, uh, people think it's really glamorous to be called to be an itinerant preacher. It's just like everybody else. You get tired, you get worn out, you have your good days, your bad days. There's jet lag to contend with, things like that. And I've had a very busy year since the 1st of January. And I remember going into that meeting and thought, you know, I wish I hadn't told people I was going to speak on healing tonight. I'm not feeling anything at all, you know. I, I just want to say, God bless you, let's go get some dinner, you know. But, man, the healings that happened like one after another, after another, after another. I remember, you know, I was given a lot of words of knowledge the Lord gave me, but I remember there was one lady, uh, I'm guessing I better watch myself, I don't know she'll hear this or not, but she appeared to be in her, let's just say, uh, a little bit beyond middle years. <laughs> and she came up to me after we had some testimonies of instant healing Florida done. And she had she was almost in tears and she said, For over forty years I suffer migraine headaches every day of my life. Would you pray for me? And I'm thinking I don't feel like <laughs> I said, I, I used up all my faith just walking the door of the church building. How many of you can relate to that? Sometimes it's just getting up and showing up is all you can do, you know. But I said, sure. And she testified the next night and again the following day that the next day was the first day in her 40 years. No migraine headache whatsoever. That's just, that's just, I mean, those of you who have had migraine type headaches that serious, you know they're completely debilitating and you can't hardly do anything. Every day for 40 years. There was another man who was part of the church there and I was glad his testimony was not too graphic. He had a problem with his colon similar to Crohn's. If you know about Crohn's, that's all we need to say about that. But his bowel movement would normally be every morning, and it would be very, very painful for him every morning for years, and he'd be in so much pain during that afterward that sometimes for an hour or two, he would just have to lay in bed and wait until some painkiller kicked in just to function. But he had gotten prayer for stomach problems that, that second night, and he testified the next night and the next morning, the first time in years, Everything was working. All the plumbing was working smoothly. That's all we'll say about that. And there were many, many other things that, you know, that just you know, too, too much to talk about. But we're in this time of acceleration. There's an increase of anointing coming upon the church. But at the heart of it all, God wants us to learn his ways that we might know him. I don't know if I've told this story, but there was a couple who lived on one street by the name of Fred and Becky. And uh, they were always having tension in their marriage. And Becky was just always after Fred. Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And uh, she, said, she said, you know, why don't you treat me like Ted and Sarah do down the street? They said, Ted and Sarah... Who are they? Oh, you know, the couple down the street, he bumped into several times. 
Why don't you do what he does? And he says, well, what does Ted do? Ted, he's always sending his wife cards, letters, writing her love notes. He's always buying flowers for her. Why don't you do that? He said, well, why would I do that? I don't even know the woman. <laughs> I, think a, I think a lot of times we're, we're hearing things about God, but we're kind of missing the fine point at times. But this is a lot of the things we're going to be covering tomorrow. God really wants us to know the height, the width, the breadth, the depth of his love. He has put his spirit within us so we might know him, not just know about him, although that's critically important. Our theology is so foundational, but that we might have the experiential knowledge of him, that we might have testimonies of lives being changed. And it says that Jesus, they prayed in the name of Jesus, the anointed one. And it says in verse 29 and 30, they prayed specifically for two things. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness. And I tell you, in the face of this growing, tyrannical, politically correct world, it takes more and more function to stand up. Uh, this cross I wear, I've, I've worn this for over 20 years. Uh, it's, it, I, I like it, uh, the style of it, but it, it brings back a lot of memories to me. I bought it in Cape Town, South Africa, 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago. My wife and my three kids were able to have a month of vacation, and it's just a incredible time for us as a family. But I was in a fish market back in San Diego last Saturday morning buying some fish that's going to cook up that night. I'm, pretty, I'm, I'm actually quite a good cook. If you don't believe me, you can ask me and I'll tell you. But, um, I was going to make some pasta and seafood. I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. But I'm buying all this seafood and there's a, you know, a young guy behind the counter, maybe 20, 22, helping me. And he's getting the clams, getting this, getting that. And then he said, I really like your cross. And, uh, and he, he said, where'd you get it? I said, I got it in Cape Town. He said, you've really got to be bold today to wear a cross because there's so many people that are anti-Christians. And he said, uh, he said, I know that sometimes I wear a cross and sometimes I catch a lot of flack. And I said, I said well, just slap them. <laughs> no, I, I didn't. <laughs> I just <laughs> I said, well, you know, God can give us a grace for that as well. But, you know, I'm not talking about just wearing jewelry or things like that, but to be outspoken and not back off. I'm not saying be pushy. I'm not saying be obnoxious. I'm not saying be contentious. But I'm saying that the Holy Spirit gives us a boldness when God gives us the opportunity to not just stand up for Christ, but to extend the kingdom of God. Now, Lord, take note of the threats, but give us a boldness to speak about Jesus. Verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Healings and miracles, I'm going to be talking about those tomorrow in one of the sessions, because I believe God wants to use all of us to move in the power of the Holy Spirit. I love what Jesus said, that if you believe I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, the works that I do, 
you shall do also. We're not all called to be prophets or apostles to nations, but we are called to be a prophetic people. We're all called to be an apostolic people. And I tell you, that, I, I just love that testimony of that woman who maybe never even prayed for someone to be healed before, like laying on hands, but there she is, almost raising the dead and in a very public situation. There is a freedom that comes when we're filled with the Spirit of God. Are you still alive? Let's stand. Turn to the person next to you and say, Well done, you survived the message. Now I'll say to the person next to you, Excuse me. Excuse me. But normally when I'm experiencing Pentecost, I need more room than you're giving me. <laughs> we're, we're, we're pretty good, right? We're we, we good. Just close your eyes and hold your hands up to the Lord. We're going to be doing a lot of ministry tomorrow and Sunday. We'll do some things. Uh, tonight, but we won't do everything, but we'll get to a lot of things. So you may have a particular need of healing or something else, and uh, don't worry about it if you're not afraid about it tonight, you know. Um, we're going to have a lot of ministry opportunities this weekend. But would you just pray out loud after me to say, Father God, Father God, here am I. Here am I. Would you send me? Would you send me? Would you send me? Would you send me? With the good news. With the good news. That your kingdom is at hand. That your kingdom is at hand. That Jesus, you're not just a far off God. Jesus, you're not just a far off God. In a place called heaven. In a place called heaven. That you are the Emmanuel. Sure, Emmanuel. You are here right now. You are here right now. By your Holy Spirit. By your Holy Spirit. Would you fill me tonight? Would you fill me tonight? With your power. Your power. Your peace. Your peace. Your joy. Your love. Your love. Would you begin to fill me right now? Just begin to take in the Holy Spirit. Right where you're at. You don't need to strive for this. You don't need to try to make anything happen. Jesus, John the, uh, Jesus said, Fear not, little flock. The Father longs to give you the kingdom. Just be filled with the Spirit of God. 